Well, good evening. It's always good to be back at Hill Street. Um, it's always a warm welcome at Hill Street. Um, it's good to be with you once again. It's been a while since I've spoken at anything here, so I want to say thank you to Nigel for the invitation to come back and talk to you. Although, when I was leaving the house tonight, my wife was not saying thank you to Nigel as I left her with a growing, multiplying number of children. Although it's been a, a happy two weeks. Um, Audrey, as her name, was born two weeks ago, and that's the third girl. So <laughs> the thoughts of you know, three teenage girls uh, is you know, really starting to scare me. Uh, so I appreciate your prayers. Um, I'm here to talk to you tonight about the Bible and why I trust the Bible. Um, and I want to tell you that I don't approach this topic as an apologist, okay? An apologist is someone who professionally defends the Christian faith, and they're gifted and skilled at debating. I'm not really a debater, and I don't want to debate with anyone tonight. I'm a teacher. As Nigel said, I teach up in Belfast, and so I approach this topic as a teacher. And so what's the difference? Well, as a teacher, what I like to do is get my students to look at a body of evidence and to examine it and to think about what they believe about that body of evidence and then to get them to know why they believe what they believe. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to present to you the evidence of why I believe the Bible is trustworthy and get you to think, why do you believe what you believe about the Bible? Is it trustworthy or not? You see, that question can apply to both people who do trust it and those who do not trust it or maybe are riding the fence somehow. Tonight, if you are skeptical or you're not sure what you believe about the Bible, that question could apply to you. Look at this evidence that I'm going to show you and make a decision. But if you do believe the Bible, I want you to be able to explain it to somebody else. Because growing uh, in this day and age is a skepticism, an antagonism against the Bible, uh, because people are raising questions about the historicity, the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible. And so, as people in the pews, we can no longer ignore those questions. We need to be able to give an answer to the people that we work with, the people in our family, the people in our neighborhoods, why we believe what we believe. Now, a long time ago, uh, one of the things that got me thinking about the trustworthiness of the Bible was a guy I worked with for a short time. And in a conversation with him, talking about the Bible, he asked me, isn't the Bible basically the same thing as the story about Jack and the Beanstalk? Do you guys know that story? Is that something you guys talk about here in Northern Ireland? Okay, good. Um, I thought, just for a moment, I thought maybe that's only an American thing. Uh, so, Jack and the Beanstalk, what's the difference between Jesus and Jack and the Beanstalk? Are they both appropriate to the realm of myths and fairy tales? Now, I didn't have a good answer for him. This was many years ago, but I think I have a better answer for him now. And now, when you compare the Bible to myths and fairy tales, it really bugs me because it's a quick way to win the argument. If you can compare someone's belief to a fairy tale or a myth or something like that, you've 
automatically won the argument. But in what way is the Bible and Jesus unlike Jack and the beanstalk? Well, let me give you something to think about. Angela, next slide. I'm going to have to be saying that over and over, um, so just get used to it. Um, we're, what we're going to do is step outside the Bible for a moment. And I know you can't read that. I'm going to read it out loud if you're having trouble. Um, I'm going to step outside the Bible for a moment and ask the question, is there any evidence for Jesus or the spread of Christianity outside the Bible? Because if there is, it's going to become increasingly difficult to describe the Gospels and the stories about Jesus as purely mythical. Now, here's a text. You don't need to know where this comes from. It's not a big deal, but this is a guy writing in about 116 AD, so right at the beginning of the second century. Not a Christian, not a believer, but a historian, an unbelieving historian writing about events that took place in the time of Jesus. And he's talking about the emperor Nero. And he says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out Again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And he goes on to say, an immense multitude of people were being found guilty of uh, becoming Christians. Now, what we know from ancient history is that Tiberius reigned from 14 to 37 A.D., and we know Pontius Pilate, you've heard his name before. We know from uh, Greco-Roman sources that he reigned in Judea uh, from 26 to 36 AD. So already we have a lot of information about this Christ fellow and the people that followed him without any Bible. We know that a guy named Christus, or Christ, the Latinized form of Christ, suffered the death penalty in Judea, round about 30 AD, and that it attracted an immense multitude in Rome. One more bit of evidence. Uh, next slide, Angela. Okay, this is another, uh, round about the same time, 112 AD. This is a fellow named Pliny the Younger. You don't need to know much about him, except that he's writing to the emperor. He has friends in high places. And he's writing to the emperor, asking for advice on how to deal with a pesky group he calls Christians. And he says, these Christians had been accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and to sing antiphonally, antiphonally means back and forth to one another, a song to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by an oath, not to some crime, but rather not to commit theft, robbery, or adultery, not to break their trust and not to refuse to return a pledge when asked to do so. So, even without a Bible, we don't have a Bible just for the sake of argument. We have a lot of information about the historicity of the early Christian movement. Next slide, Angela. We know that Jesus existed. 
was called Christ, which is a very interesting thing if you know Christ is translated Messiah. So you have a Jewish Messiah being worshipped as a God by Gentiles. Now that's a very significant uh, thing to follow. But Jesus existed, was called Christ, executed under Pontius Pilate in Judea around about 30 AD, worshipped as a God. Christians spread from Judea, Asia Minor, that's where Pliny was writing, and Rome, and multiple uh, multitudes are worshiping Jesus. Frankly, this is amazing to me, that we have so much information outside the Bible that someone can still say the stories about Jesus are pure myths, okay? When you look at this information, it becomes harder and harder and harder to say that the Gospels are pure myths, fairy tales. Why? because myths don't cohere so strongly with history. We're talking about real people, real places, real events. So this does not prove everything in the Bible. I'm not gonna even pretend that it would. But what it does prove is that the Bible is not pure myths. It's like Jack and the Beanstalk. What if we had this kind of information for a guy named Jack and a beanstalk and a giant. We would have to reevaluate our thoughts on that fairy tale. So, let's bring the Bible back because I want to talk about the Bible tonight. So, we're going to bring the Bible back into the picture. If it's not pure myth, if it's not just plucked out of the air, if it's not simply a fairy tale told to children at bedtime, let's bring it back and actually evaluate it. Um, Next slide, Angela. So the first question people want to ask is, if you want to have a Bible, why these books? Why these books and not others? Aren't there other books written about Jesus? I'll get to that in a moment. But one of the first hang-ups that people have when it comes to the Bible is that it contains stories about miracles, the supernatural, Jesus turning water into wine, Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Don't we know better now? Don't we know more than they did back in the pre-modern days when they you know, believed every story about a miracle worker? Why do we hold on to these stories if there's non-scientific stuff in them? Now, first of all, I want to say it's right to take a cautious stance. But it is wrong to throw out a book, to throw out a set of books, and to set them aside entirely because they have stories that contain supernatural events. Why? Well, if you're going to throw out books that have supernatural events and stories about miracles, you're going to lose most of what we know about history. If you look back at historians writing at the same time as Jesus, They all write about miracles and supernatural events. So if you want to throw those away, we're going to lose most of what we know about people like Alexander the Great, the lives of the Caesars, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Egypt. The list goes on and on and on. If you're going to throw away sources with miracles in them, you're going to know next to nothing about history at all. 
When you see a story that has uh, miracles in it or something supernatural, you shouldn't throw it away. It should cause you to sit up and take notice and be very cautious. Be very careful with it. Study it. Make sure you know exactly what it's saying. Make sure you can tell whether or not the claims are verifiable or not. You're, you're copping out of the discussion. You're, 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 you're trying to sneak away from the discussion if you want to throw away a book simply because it contains miracles or supernatural events. You don't want to throw away these books because they stand the closest to the events that they're describing. Uh, next slide, Angela, please. So why these books? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. Sometimes it's described as a book that's just been kind of randomly selected. We'll talk about the Gospels for a moment. Some people describe the selection of the Gospels as if it was just random. It was arbitrary. It was a political decision by Constantine in the fourth century. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Why do we read the Gospels that we read? Why do we read the books in the Bible that we read? Well, there's a very simple reason. It's because they stand closest to the events they're describing. Why do we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They all date to the first century. They all go back to eyewitnesses, apostles, people who followed Jesus. We don't read them because we like them more than others. They stand closest to the events they're describing. And if you go into detail about uh, what they know about first century Jerusalem, and Galilee, and Judea, they have accurate and precise knowledge about places and people and things. And when you compare that to other books, you find that that's actually quite remarkable. Um, go to the next slide, Angela. There's a, a group of texts um, that if you've read, you know, um, The Da Vinci Code or seen the movie, um, there's another group of gospels that were not chosen in the Bible. And it sounds real, you know, spooky and like a conspiracy theory that uh, the books have just been chosen randomly or for political reasons. But all you need to do is read those books to find that they have no idea who Jesus was or what he was doing. This comes from the Gospel of Philip. It's not really written by the disciple Philip. It dates to the third century. Uh, and you can tell by reading uh, the Gospel of Philip that whoever wrote this has no idea what Jerusalem was like. He, he says there were three buildings specifically for sacrifice in Jerusalem. The one facing the west was called the Holy. Another facing south was called the Holy of the Holy. The third, facing east, was called the Holy of the Holies, the place where only the high priest enters. Now, if you knew anything about Jerusalem in the first century, you would laugh at that because it's absurdly wrong. There was not three uh, temples in Jerusalem facing all these directions. There was one. And what, when you read these other gospels, these other stories about Jesus, they're written much later. They're not by eyewitnesses. They're not by apostles. And they betray almost no knowledge of the local customs, geography, people, places, or things. That is why we throw them out and set them aside as unhelpful, not authoritative. Not because we dislike them or have some prejudice against them. And I'm not making a controversial claim here. 
Just to be honest, I'm not saying that because I'm conservative, because I'm an evangelical. Scholars on every end of the spectrum, theologically liberal conservative, will agree. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the earliest written gospels we have. And they're the only ones with plausible connections to eyewitnesses and followers of the eyewitnesses. I'm not making that up. I'm not pretending that's the case. That is across the board what scholars believe. That is why we like those books, because they stand close to the events they're describing. They're by people who knew Jesus, heard Jesus. So why would I set those aside? Why would I give those up for the gospel of Philip? Now, go to the next slide, Angela. There's another uh, problem with these books. Don't they disagree with one another? Don't they contradict one another? Don't they say different things about Jesus? Why would I trust them? There's a great illustration to use at this point, and I'm stealing it from a scholar named Mike Lacona, and I just want to give him credit because I'm stealing his uh, illustration. And you'll love this illustration because that is, of course, the Titanic. And as I'm told, it was fine when it left the harbor. Whatever happened afterwards is on them. Now, when the Titanic sank, there were conflicting eyewitness reports about how it sank. I don't know if you know this. There were conflicting eyewitness reports. Some of the survivors said that the Titanic went straight down. It hit the iceberg and went straight down. Some of the eyewitnesses said, no, it broke in half and then went down. Now, these were eyewitnesses watching the same event something as cataclysmic as the wreck and sinking of the Titanic. How could they get something like that wrong? Now, no one for a moment would doubt that the Titanic sank because of these disagreements, this uh, contradiction in the eyewitness reports. No one for a moment said, well, your stories don't add up. It must not have happened. That would be absurd. And we could apply the same thing to the biblical texts. Just because we find differences doesn't mean the events didn't happen. It means, once again, we need to be careful. We need to be cautious. We need to study very carefully. But the truth is, it's not a great analogy for the Bible nor for the Gospels because the differences we see in the Gospels are not nearly as major as that. It's not as if we have some Gospels that say Jesus never died on the cross and some say he did. It's not as if some Gospels say he never rose again, and some say he did. The differences we have in the Gospels are so minor compared to this kind of difference. The differences we have in the Gospels are, for example, how many women went to the tomb on Easter morning? Was it one or two or three? What exactly did the angels say when the women came to the tomb? Those are the sorts of differences we have. But the broad outline of the major events cohere strongly with one another. In fact, what's so remarkable is how closely they align the four Gospels we have. Four Gospels written from four different perspectives that agree on all the major things about Jesus' life, his ministry, the shape of his ministry, the significance of his death, 
and the significance of his resurrection. What is amazing is how closely they agree. But even if there are surface-level disagreements, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It means we need to be careful and cautious and study them to see if we really understand. Now, I'm not going to pretend like there aren't problems. I'm not going to pretend like there aren't problems in the gospel narratives that we need to think critically about. There are, and that's why people like me have a job, to study things like that, to get the details right. But on the whole, they agree remarkably well. So from my own view, the substantial agreement in the gospel narratives and the other biblical books, along with the historical evidence outside of the Bible, presents a compelling case that we need to take the Bible seriously. We may not have to, right off the bat, believe everything it says, but we can't throw it out. We've got to take it seriously. Okay, next slide. Um, So what I want to talk about as a third question is, um, has the Bible been changed? Has the Bible been changed by the church? I'm going to address both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And with the Old Testament, I can't go very far without bringing up the Dead Sea Scrolls. And now that's a real newspaper clipping uh, that was from around about 1950, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were put uh, for sale in a classified ad in, I think it was, the Wall Street Journal. And a great gift uh, for a, an individual or a group. Uh, Christmas is coming up, so... Um, ideas for you if you have a significant other and don't have a gift yet, you could buy some Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Obviously, that's silly because they're priceless, and they didn't even know what they were selling at this point. But I'm going to talk about the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Dead Sea Scrolls give us a great idea about whether or not the Bible has been changed. Why is that? Okay, next slide, Angela. Oh, here's just some photos of the cave, one of the caves that... um, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were founded in the late 1940s. Uh, yeah, go ahead and uh, next one, Angela. So what I'm going to focus on are two significant reasons why the Dead Sea Scrolls need to be within your uh, uh, field of vision. Why are they important? Two reasons tonight. The first one, they give compelling evidence that Christians have not changed the Bible. I'll tell you why in a second. But the second one is that the, the, it significantly shows us that the Old Testament has been copied carefully. Okay? Christians haven't changed the Bible, and the Old Testament has been copied carefully. Next slide. So um, that is a, on the top a picture of one of the scrolls that was discovered in the caves at Qumran, which is the location where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And I've got a little timeline at the bottom And on the far right end of the timeline is uh, a mark on the 10th century, 10th century AD, so around about the 900s. That is when uh, the evidence, the the text we had for the Old Testament dated to. We had Old Testament manuscripts, copies of the Old Testament. They dated to about the 900s. Now, they were authored and written long, long before that in the time of Moses, the time of the prophets, the time of David. But the actual copies, the handmade copies we have, dated much, much later. Okay? That changed 
with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls dated before the time of Jesus. That means we got biblical manuscripts dating to the time prior to Jesus' life. Now, they found copies or partial copies of every book in the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls, with one exception, the book of Esther. And that might change in a couple of years. They're still publishing Dead Sea Scrolls. There's so many discovered. Um, but every book of the Old Testament, nothing of the New Testament was found there, just Old Testament. Every book except for Esther, which gave us a remarkable, unforeseen chance to check to see if the church had changed the Bible. You see, look at it logically. We have a chance now to see what the Bible looked like before Jesus came to earth. And if those manuscripts line up with what we have here, then it shows us quite clearly that Christians have not corrupted the Old Testament to make it look more Christian. And that's exactly what we see when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. We see careful copying through time, careful transmission through time. One example, uh, go to the next slide, Angela, please. Uh, so I was preaching um, on Isaiah, and I know you say Isaiah, uh, I'll say it my way, Isaiah uh, 53, Isaiah 53, and I took a picture of the page uh, because if you know Isaiah 53, you'll know it's the suffering servant psalm, one of them, and um, the servant, this mysterious servant figure is described by Isaiah as someone who bears the sin of the nation. And it's a remarkable text used in the New Testament to reflect on Christ and the significance of the cross. But there's a footnote that I wanted to take a picture of because there's a footnote related to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And while I was preaching, I couldn't bring in all the information about the footnote. I would have completely lost the audience even more so than you are lost now. Uh, so I took a little note, took a picture, and I said, I'm going to come back to this. So go to the next slide, Angela, and I've got the text a slightly more uh, readable here. But what's amazing is this footnote, and I'm going to read the footnote, and I'm going to explain it to you. So what does the footnote say? Uh, Isaiah 53, 11, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, parenthesis, C, also Septuagint, Masoretic text does not have the light of life. Now, what really bothers me about these footnotes is that you need a PhD to understand them. So how can anyone in the pews understand a footnote like that? Why even put it there? Um, but this relates to the question of how close was the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the text we have? Were there a lot of changes over that gap from the 2nd century to the 10th? What kind of changes do we see? Not many. Not many changes. One scholar says that the text of Isaiah um, is 95% identical to the text we have. 95% identical. And that 5% are mostly spelling changes, changes in word order, and things like that. Now, there were a couple significant differences, and this is one of them. And I want to show it to you. So, uh, what... Isaiah says in verse 11, is after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Footnote to verse 11, we just read it, and it says, the Dead Sea Scrolls have the red words. The text as we knew it before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls did not have the red words. Okay? So it almost doesn't make sense without the red words, right? Try and read that for a minute without the red words. It's something like, he will see and be satisfied. He will see what? It seems like something's missing. But that was the text we had prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now we find this copy of Isaiah, and it adds something there. And what we find is a better reading. We find a difference, a significant difference that changes the meaning, that adds a little bit of light, so to speak, to the text here. Now what is the significance of that change? Does it call into question some doctrine we have? Does it undermine some belief we have about Jesus? Not at all. Actually, this is a great change. This is a really interesting one that actually brings out more clearly a doctrine we already have, which is the bodily resurrection of Christ. This change that we've seen over time, it dropped out. We don't know how. We don't know why. But now that we actually have a clearer, more accurate text, it doesn't hurt anything. It actually helps us see more clearly the bodily resurrection of our Savior. So those are the sorts of differences we see. They don't endanger anything. They shouldn't frighten us. We should welcome them because they bring into more clarity what we already believe. So, to summarize the Dead Sea Scrolls, what do you need to know about them? Well, they demonstrate careful copying of the Old Testament through the centuries. Praise God for the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they also show that Christians haven't corrupted the text. How could we? The Old Testament is based on a Hebrew Bible um, that modern Jews read today. Go to any synagogue, find their Bible, their Old Testament. They wouldn't call it that, but they'd call it the Hebrew Bible. It's the same one we use. Now, if we had corrupted it, if Christians had corrupted it and rewritten it, why would they still use it? They'd say, keep your own corrupted Bible and we'll keep ours. We use the same Old Testament. It hasn't been corrupted by the church. So, has the Bible been tampered with, corrupted? At least not the Old Testament. So what about the New Testament? Okay, next slide, Angela. Now, I know you can't read any of this, um, but that's okay. I'll try and explain the best I can. So with the New Testament, we don't have another group of people who really use it and would be upset if we corrupted it. So has the New Testament been rewritten and corrupted over time? Now, we have a similar answer with the Old Testament. The answer is no, but we get there slightly differently. What I'm showing you in that chart, are, this is actually a chart that a friend of mine made, giving the number of copies of the New Testament we have in each century, stretching from the first century 
over on down to modern times. And each hand copy we have of the New Testament, each physical manuscript is represented by one of the bars on the graph. And so you can see kind of near the end, near modern times, we have more than in early times, and that's just what you'd expect with things like the destruction of uh, materials and fire and floods and things like that. But the significance of that chart is that all of those manuscripts, all of those copies are freely available to look at and study. You can do it if you want right now. You could go on your smartphone, you could go online to a website that lists all of those manuscripts and you could look at high-res images of all of them. And provided you know Greek, or at least you're up on your Greek, you could read them and translate them and see for yourself what they say. So if you want to pick a point on that chart and say the church corrupted the text here, at this point in history, all you need to do is look at the manuscripts that predate it. What do they look like? Do they show that the text has been corrupted, rewritten? Has the church done whatever they wanted with the text? And so that's why no scholar worth his salt will believe that the church has rewritten the Bible because the evidence is out there to see. The evidence is available. It's not hidden away in some vault underneath some church. The evidence we have for the New Testament is freely available for you to look at. We have nothing to hide. And so all the manuscripts you want, you can go online. Most of them have Wikipedia pages, by the way. Now, I wouldn't go there for the most reliable information about them. But if you want to see pictures of them, you can. And you can see because the church has nothing to hide with the Bible. And praise God for that. So let me close by making an appeal to you. You might be thinking you want some hard evidence that the Bible is trustworthy. And let me tell you that that's not necessarily wrong to want evidence that the Bible is trustworthy. Angela, next slide. So this is the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And when Luke writes his Gospel, he begins this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Whoever this Theophilus guy was, and we don't know much about him, he wanted certainty. And that's okay. God gave you a brain, and he expects you to use it. But don't throw away the only evidence there is, the closest evidence we have to the events. Don't throw away the Bible because of a preconceived idea that miracles can't happen, that it's all myths. I hope what you've seen tonight is that the Bible can't be dismissed out of hand as a myth. There's too much grounding in history with real people, real places, real things to be dismissed out of hand as religious nonsense. 
You may not be convinced of everything you've heard tonight, and that's okay, but what you can't do is ignore this book. You cannot ignore this book. It's not going to go away. Think about it. For all the scientific progress that's been made in the last several hundred years, has the Bible gone away? Have people stopped believing? Because science. Not on the grand scale that we would expect. So if we can't dismiss it and we can't ignore it, the only real option is to read it for ourselves until we finally see what it's really saying to us. The Gospel of Luke is a great place to start. If you haven't read it in a while, if you haven't read the Bible at all, start with Luke. He's got evidence and certainty in his mind as he's writing. It'd be a great place to begin your reading. He's written to give his readers confidence. So my appeal to you is to take the next step. Read it for yourself with an open mind and an open heart and just see if it doesn't surprise you. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your providential care of your word given to us, handed down by the apostles, transmitted carefully, spread into all the world in every tongue, changing lives even now, and by your spirit, glorifying your son, Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, he is our master, he is our savior, and the scriptures testify to him. Lord, give us hearts that are hungry for your word, hearts that love the Savior. Would you, by your Spirit, convict us, challenge us, comfort us? Would you use your church to build us up, to make us confident in your word, to speak to one another, and to those outside the faith for the reasons why we have hope? Lord, we thank you for all you've done for us especially in the giving of your son, Jesus Christ, the word of God, the Father, from before the world began. Lord, we love you. We love Jesus Christ. Would you make us more like him today and in the days to come? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Zach, thank you so much. Uh, we want to take, we did say we would do this, we, we want to take a few moments and, and just pick up any particular questions that we might have, uh, and what I'll try and do is repeat them so that if uh, we have a tape of this, uh, they're on the tape as well. Anything we want to ask Zach to, to go back to or to go in a different direction on? Pete. Your skeptical friend who just dismisses the Bible out of hand, but is willing to probably have a conversation about it, where 
Where would we encourage our skeptical friend? How would we begin the conversation if we've never talked to someone about these things before? Do you mean like what topic to start with? I suppose an accessible way to begin talking about what you've talked about tonight that doesn't feel super intimidating. Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, like where do you start having the conversation? I would almost always start with Jesus. Jesus. For several reasons. There's a practical reason, and that's because um, Jesus still commands a bit of respect in the culture, even if, you know, you discount, you know, the Old Testament and discount this and the miraculous stuff, people still will listen to a conversation about Jesus because they want to have an opinion on him. But my deeper reason for that is because Jesus is the, the center of everything. And in fact, my doctrine of scripture derives from Jesus, not from some set of evidence that I can find out there. My, I was talking about the Old Testament this morning in, in church, and my view of the Old Testament is determined by Jesus' view of the Old Testament. And that's just one example of the fact that start with Jesus, end with Jesus, because Jesus is the one who will convict and endear as well. You know, there's something so infinitely alluring about Jesus, and that's where I would start. And if you want to know more about Jesus and his teaching and how he can challenge you and surprise you, and th that would be my suggestion. Yeah. Thank you. Another question? So question is about Luke's account of Paul's conversion. Uh, in the first account, in the early part of Acts, uh, there's reference to hearing a voice. Later on, that doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, so um, there's a couple things going on there, but the way I understand that is there's two different words for hear used in both contexts, 9 and 22, and one can mean hear and comprehend, and the other one simply means just hear a voice sound and not comprehend it. And so that's the way I see it. So they, they definitely heard the noise, but in uh, 9, chapter 9, he's focusing on the fact that um, they didn't understand it. Does that make, the, make sense, the difference there? That's when he's had no sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for instance, our prayer meeting to start this morning started with uh, an account of the two men on the way to Emmaus. Is there any other writings for the amateur people in those days that would have written stuff about the Lord Jesus Christ from their angle? I know there's a fair bit in the Bible. Why after 
Okay, so a question about the existence of really early Christian literature? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I was going to say is that, you know, you mentioned the road to Emmaus and kind of an explanation in a simple way about Jesus. Well, in many ways, the Gospels are that. You know, if you look at the kind of highbrow literature of the ancient world, the Gospels aren't really written at that level. Um, They're written at a more working man's kind of rough and ready way of speaking, especially the Gospel of Mark. And so um, they would be readily understandable. And I think that's why um, they were so appealing to the masses of people who were not necessarily educated or you know, literate, but when they heard these stories, they were gripping. But to answer your question, yes, so the writings of Christians began actually quite early, and there's a set of books that we collect together called the Apostolic Fathers, the Apostolic Fathers. And it's actually not written by the apostles, which is kind of confusing. It's written by the generation immediately after the apostles. And they're not dangerous. They're not uh, apocryphal in that scary sense. They're written by believers, um, uh, teachers, preachers of the day, um, trying to work out uh, the message of Jesus in their own contexts. And so if you want to start reading those, uh, just Google apostolic fathers, just apostle, but apostolic, I see, fathers, great set of texts, fun to read, and it'll give you a lot of information about the early Christians. Super, let's take a last question, I think, Tony. Is it true that, uh, that Jewish people don't generally read Isaiah 53 in public? I do not know enough to comment on that, but I would be surprised if that's true. I don't know. Sorry. I think it's a good um, note to end on. I don't know. <laughs> well done, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Zag, it's been really lovely to have you with us uh, and, and just a, a delight to, to have you stimulate us again. And, and, re- and uh, so reassuring, isn't it, just to, to, to say this uh, book, this text that, that we find so personally valuable, in, uh, uh, that, that, uh, through which God speaks to us, that uh, we have not surrendered our brains as, as we treat it with uh, incredible reverence and respect and, and want to then communicate it to others. Thank you for Uh, being with us tonight, and uh, we will be picking up another question in a few weeks uh, after Christmas, and we'd love to uh, welcome you back again if you've been here for the first time.